We were talking about at work, like some people starting to return to to being in the office, and I just felt this internal like sense of dread. I'm like, oh my god, am I gonna have to start wearing like real pants again? Because I look real professional from the waist up, but waist down, it's like yoga pants, sweatpants. You know, I'm not ready. I'm yeah. not ready to let that comfort go. Yeah, I have no desire. Like, I, I don't know if I said it last time we talked. They, my job sent out like a survey and was like, okay, let us know like the ratio for at home to in office that you want to be. They're like, you know, we know that things are kind of different now. And so we want people to still feel comfortable or we, you know, we're okay with mm-hmm. people working from home. And I literally respond. I'm like, uh, yeah, my ratio is five zero. <laughs> I have no intention to go into the office. Uh, and apparently a lot of other people agreed. So fingers crossed. I don't have I to think go it, it'll be interesting to see how the field of counseling changes as people have grown more accustomed to Zoom therapy. Mm-hmm. I think that there are so many benefits to to Zoom therapy as opposed to in-person just because it reduces the barriers to care in a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, senses. And I think it it almost feels it feels more comforting to talk to someone when you're in a comfortable environment yeah, as definitely. opposed to like having to drive somewhere else. Cuz I personally for like if I were to start seeing a therapist again, I think I would opt for Zoom. There's no way I would ever go in person anywhere just because I don't feel like driving and I think that you could get the same benefit from from Zoom or even maybe even a little bit more of a benefit. So Yeah, so I've been doing um I do like my weekly therapy um on like I guess it's not technically Zoom, it's the platform for the therapy thing. Right. Um and no I definitely I don't know, I prefer it. Um one I do definitely agree with like feeling more comfortable there's something about being in my own space and just like here's what I need to talk through and then if she's like all right like I want you to try like we're gonna do the CBT thing or whatever um <laughs> like like I'm doing it in like the space that I would need to be doing it in exactly. like regularly and so that's one um aspect that I really like um and then also just I don't know I guess partially because of my line of work I hate getting like paper material things mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I remember when I would be going to in-person therapy with another other therapists they'd often like print things off and they're like hey like look at this and I'm like this is gonna get lost in my car and then I'm gonna throw it away. like I'm never gonna look at this again whereas like she'll just email me something and then we'll like look through it together and I oh, always nice. have it like available um and we'll literally like worksheet type things you know she'll be like okay um I feel like I don't know if you do that in when you do therapy but like okay can you think through something that you could do in this stressful situation. Like, it's nice to be able to just, like, mm-hmm. type it out, like, right in front of me and then have that document. <laughs> like, because I, right. I don't know. That's just me. Right. But. 
Yeah, I'm we, a fan. we personally don't utilize email with patients. We have to use a more um, protect or a more like encrypted platform, so it's not as easy to send like PDF files and things like that. But that is definitely something I'm trying to figure. Like, if I can find a PDF, like uh, a link of it, then I'll send it. Um, yeah, and I'm just. Oh, I'm going through my own like development journey as a therapist, <laughs> like figuring out you know what I want to do. I've recently been purchasing so many self-help books, like thrift books must think I'm like losing my mind. I'm like buying books about like, oh, if someone you love passes away, how to be a caretaker for your aging parents, like <laughs> codependent no more. I love that. <laughs> They're like she's going through some stuff, but it's so it's so great. I I personally love reading and I think that's like kind of the direction I'm starting to lean in of like Mm -hmm. I think books can serve as like such a nice kind of bridge to therapy especially depending on like I know now that times are really rough with getting a session booked with a therapist a lot of therapists have such long wait lists or um you know are just impossible to get in touch with because of the pandemic because there's so many people trying to to reach out to therapy and then um you know there might be delays in in getting to be seen so i think books can serve as like a nice kind of in between and it's just always it's like having a little expert in your pocket (laughs) talking to you and it's like helping me to learn about things that i might not be as familiar with because i think that's our roles as therapists is to always be like growing and learning about other people's experiences Mm -hmm. outside of our own so that's what i've been doing I've been relative, almost similar-ish in, like, for research purposes. I'm going to turn down my gain because, um, <clears throat> for research purposes, I guess, I am not, obviously, I say this every time we, I'm not a reader, guys, um, but I, I don't know, I have the hardest time finding, like, good source, sometimes material on, mm-hmm. um, like if I'm just using PubMed and stuff, like there's so many different articles that say different things and then they're all mm-hmm. referring back to measures that you don't have full access to and blah, 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 blah. And so I literally have started like working or not working public, like purchasing um, like actual textbooks that are all about like measuring certain types of oh, um, things. So I literally, like I'm looking at this book, it's measuring the effects of racism and race-based traumatic stress injury. Um, it has like a ton of like Thrilling. measures and explanations. And so this is That's me. really smart. This though, is like, they're all in one place. Yeah. And so this is me like fully prepared to take on my grad school journey. <laughs> Heck yeah. Oh, it's so wait. fun. I love it. <laughs> I love it. But also like... I don't, I don't, how do people operate like not being like therapists or like not like it weirds me out that the people have like other jobs I'm like <laughs> what do you do if you're not thinking about mental health literally 24 7 I don't understand Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. 
Um, yeah. Okay. So basically, guys, we're doing. Uh, oh, also, thing- leave us a review. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just gonna say that. I was okay, too Don't worry. Go I'm a professional. <laughs> um, guys, leave us a review. It is so helpful. I haven't checked to see if if anyone's left us a review since since the last time we spoke. We've gotten, I think, at least one or two more. So thank you. Oh my gosh! Wait, let me pull it up. Pink collar. I think what somebody commended us for doing this while we have full time jobs. So. Oh my god! Wait, but I need to see that because <laughs> I just feel like extra glee. Oh, um, here, Madison Chai. I love the variation of the mischief y'all talk about: violent, financial, robbery, etc. I also admire you doing this so well. In addition to your full time work, thank you, we Madison. Totally appreciate that, and I will say, uh, due to my full time job, um, I kind of threw this one together. Oh my god! Um, wait, same. <laughs> Yeah, and so I pretty much used one source. Um, if that source is inaccurate, well, not my fault. I work um, for a I like, <laughs> Yeah, I wrote my case, and then I had the full intentions of going back and editing it and making sure that it sounded really nice, and then I just didn't because I got caught up with work today. So here we go. I hope you enjoy this like fresh take of <laughs> me not really knowing what I'm talking about. Maybe it would help if I had my script up in the first place. See, this is what I would do in school, too, with, like, I would wait until the absolute last minute, and then I would just write a paper all at once, and I just would be like, I don't feel like reading back through this again, and I would just turn it in as is. I am not, like, a first draft, second draft kind of girl. I just put my whole heart into it and then it's like um you know when people blow up a car and they press the button and they just walk away that's like (laughs) that's what this is gonna be um so anyway guys i guess the theme at the end of the day is something medical related so for my case i'm doing the case of sarah beck so the police on one day in February, February 25th of 2019, that's my brother's birthday, um, they showed up to a home, not for, this was not for my brother's birthday, this is completely separate. Anyway, um, <laughs> so the police showed up to a home in Chandler, Arizona on February 25th, 2019. They had their guns drawn, they had their tactical vests as they surrounded a ranch home located in the suburbs of Phoenix. But this wasn't a drug bust. There wasn't a dangerous fugitive inside. This was not a cult house. And to explain how we got here, let's take it back to some events that occurred earlier in that day. So Sarah Beck was having a tough time. Her two-year-old son had a very bad fever. And as one does when their child is very sick, Sarah brought her son to the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicines Clinic around 5 p.m. that evening. The doctor recorded her son's temperature and was quite alarmed when the thermometer reported his temperature was over 105 degrees. Um, And so on Norton Children's Hospital's website, it said if your child is between three months and three years um, and has a fever of over 102.2 degrees, call your doctor. So I don't have children, so I didn't know that. But 105 is pretty alarming. I think if, if anyone I knew had a 105 degree fever, I'd be like go to the hospital one Um, time i was at school so my parents were very much those like if you're not dead you're going to school 
um, type, which I personally didn't mind. I loved going to school. Um, and then one day, like, I was just so out of it. My teachers, like, forced me to go to the nurse. And they're like, um, you have, like, 160-degree fever. <laughs> and oh so they called gosh. my parents. And my parents were like, well, um, we're at work. So... <laughs> And they like sent my cousin's ex-wife to pick me up. Oh my gosh. That's it was great. Terrible but hilarious. Okay. I survived. I'm interested. So. I'm interested to hear your opinions on this case because okay. I remember I know through our friendship that your parents are a little bit more um I don't know what the right word is, but like I don't know. I feel like my parents are like soft. Like <laughs> my parents do. Like my mother especially ruled with an iron fist. <laughs> so. You'll you'll understand when we when we get to yeah. there. But okay, so 105 degrees. Uh, the doctor then consulted with the staff at two nearby hospitals. They were concerned that the child was showing signs of a life threatening illness that they would not be able to test for at their clinic. Um, Sarah was instructed to what was that? I just stuttered so bad. Sarah was instructed to take her child to the emergency room as quickly as possible. And at a later court hearing, the doctor uh, said that they were afraid the the child had meningitis. So that's what the disease they feared. Um, So according to the Stanford Children's Health website, meningitis is swelling of the membranes that cover the brain and spinal cord. So it's most commonly caused by a bacterial or viral infection that moves into the cerebral spinal fluid and infections usually start in the respiratory tract in children it might start off being like a cold or a sinus infection or an ear infection Um, so a lumbar puncture or spinal tap is the only type of test that can diagnose meningitis so I won't talk about that for your sake Natalie appreciate Um, it but anyone who's seen like Grey's Anatomy or like any medical show can picture in their head it's not pleasant, but obviously you would want to rule out that your child, you know, might have a life-threatening condition. Um, so Sarah did not want to take her child to the ER because she feared the hospital re- would report her to the Arizona Department of Child Safety for not vaccinating her child. Her husband, Brooks Bryce, wanted the child to be vaccinated, so Sarah didn't want him to find out that the child was not vaccinated. So we don't know why Sarah did not vaccinate her child. It does not appear that it was for a medical reason. Seems like it's some type of, you know, personal or religious reason. But either way, she was assured that she wouldn't be reported to the authorities because parents in Arizona can opt out of vaccination for personal, religious, or medical reasons. Um, And, you know, just to insert my own personal opinions here, as a firm anti-needle believer, I do believe we should vaccinate people you know yeah consider it guys we're, consider it more we're clearly pro family here <laughs> we're clearly pro vax unless yeah. you know there's a medical reason that that you aren't able to to get this um yeah. but for whatever reason we do not know sarah has never come out we don't it wasn't in any of the articles i read but she was like okay fine i will go to the doctor and, or go to the er so the doctor at the clinic told them to go to a nearby children's hospital and alerted the er that they were on their way the doctor requested that the er call the clinic back when Sarah and her child arrived. 
So the doctor waited and waited, and at 6.30, Sarah called the clinic. She said she had purchased a thermometer on her way home, and it showed her son's temperature had dropped to 102. She said her son was acting normal in the car, was dancing with his sisters in the back seat. Um, so she assumed the fever had broke and everything was going to be fine. Um, so store thermometers are not very effective, just from what I know. I don't have an exact source for that, but I just know, obviously, they're probably not going to be as effective as, as the thermometers you have in the doctor's office. So as a parent, I'm just thinking my own way through this. I would be more trusting of the doctor's reading than of my own. But Sarah, you know, reported that her son's temperature dropped even more by the time she made it home. And the clinic doctor said, well, you know, you should still go to the emergency room to make sure your son is recovering. So Sarah was still nervous about getting in trouble about her child not being vaccinated. So she asked the doctor if she could lie about her son being vaccinated. The doctor was like, no. <laughs> no. Bad move. No. <laughs> like... no. Be honest with your doctors, guys. Like, even if it's embarrassing or whatever, they've heard worse. So always but be also, honest. But also, I feel like most doctors would be like, no, you like lying in this case is not helpful to anybody. Right. But also I think a doctor would rather see your child who's unvaccinated and rather would rule them out for having a certain disease and mm -hmm. they can't force they can't like take your child in the back room and stick them up with a vaccine before you leave like that. Yeah. You have to consent to that as a parent. So mm -hmm. um so she was still like I'm not going to the doctor or the ER. And the doctor said, no, I'm going to have to report you to the authorities if you don't take your son to the hospital or an urgent care clinic soon. So I'll just pause and say, like, if this were a case where she was, like, nervous that she wouldn't be able to afford hospital care, I, you know, a trip to the ER is not cheap. Um, urgent care is slightly more affordable. I don't know what her insurance situation was, her financial standing. You know, in that case, I might be a little bit more understanding of a parent who just fears, like, I'm literally not going to be able to, like, financially recover from bringing my child to the ER, and I think they're okay. Um, but I also think, too, at this point, she could have turned around and gone back to the doctor's office and you know, yeah. on the way home, she could have turned around and said, I'm coming back. Like, it looks like my kid's doing better. Do I still need to go? I just think there were other options here besides, you know, not answering the doctor after the doctor says, I'm going to have to report you to the authorities. Um, so Sarah stopped answering the doctor's calls. So the doctor called the Arizona Department of Child Safety. They informed them that they had tried calling multiple, so the doctor tried calling multiple hospitals in the area to see if Sarah had brought her child in, but was unable to locate the family. So this prompted the agency to call the Chandler P Police Department and request the officers complete a welfare check. So it was about 10.30 at night by the time this request was made. So the officers showed up to the home, knocked on the door. They were able to hear coughing children inside. So it turns out there, there were two other kids in the family. They were both sick as well, as is common. If one kid brings something home, then everyone's probably going to get sick. Um, so there's an 11-minute video of the police, the what went down before this police raid happened. And it'll be in my sources if you're interested in watching it, but I'm going to paraphrase what goes on throughout the video. So they ring the doorbell, wait a bit, they're knocking on the door. It's 11.18 a.m. or a.m., p.m., <laughs> no answer. At 11.29, they get on the phone with the doctor, um, you know, just confirming all of the information, checking to see if they heard back. Um, 
obviously hadn't. So at 11.42, they made a second attempt to um, contact the people inside the house. So that the parents, that would be Sarah Beck and Brooks Bryce. Um, they, so at this point, Brooks was primarily, we don't hear from Sarah at all. Brooks was the only one who was interacting with the police. Um, so he was like, stop banging on my door. And the cops were like, we need to check on your son to make sure he's okay. They made a third attempt at contact at 11.58, knocking on the door, nothing. Um, 12.06, they made a third attempt to give him a call. They're like, hello, did you hear what I said when I was standing out the door? Do I need to repeat myself? Um, and the cop said, like, listen, you have two options here. You can come out and talk to us. We have DCS here. They want to check on your kid, make sure he's okay. Uh, Bryce asked if they, or Brooks Bryce. It's like weird because he has two first names. I'm pretty sure I mixed <laughs> it up. Brooks asked if they had a warrant and it was like, the kids are fine. I'm, I'm not coming out. And the cop said, uh, well, the doctor said this kid needs to be taken to the hospital. He could have a life-threatening illness. Please just come out and talk. Like, if you don't, we're going to take your children away. And this could end up being a felony charge. Like, the cop was like, listen, like, I just want this kid to be taken to the hospital. Bryce was like, listen, all my kids are sick. They have the sniffles. They're sleeping. I don't want to take them to the hospital. And so there was a fourth attempt at 12.53 a.m. to make contact. The police were at the door. Um, they said, Bust the door okay. Down. They said, we have a temporary custody order signed by a judge. We are going to kick down your door if you don't come down. So they Look waited a bit, <laughs> rang the doorbell again, and they said, we'll give you a copy of this order. We are going to force entry. We are going to kick down your door. So at 1.24 a.m., they forced entry into the home. They announced who they were, um, like, in the video. This this was making me, too, think a lot about, like, Breonna Taylor, because mm -hmm. I was like, imagine if... It seems like in this case they did a good job of, like, alerting, like, yeah. making sure the people inside knew. Um, I will also point themselves. out this family is yeah. white. Um, so might be a little protection there like obviously this person was able to have be very unpleasant towards the cops and and not be quite you know punished or like manhandled right away um so they announced who they were they're like we're the cops we're the cops all right now we're going inside um and they also set off like an alarm to further alert their president it was like wah, 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 wah. um so brooks came uh, Brooks came down first with his hands up. The cops started the process of arresting him, and Brooks indicated he had a gun that was locked up and that Sarah didn't have access to it. I assume they just wanted to make sure that Sarah, like, wasn't going to come down with the gun pointed at them. Um, so there were two additional children in the home, ages six and four. The cops reported that the home was a mess and that there were piles of clothes scattered across the floor, which, like... I felt really attacked personally there. Like, if they came in my home, would they say it's a mess and there's piles of clothes? Because there <laughs> certainly is. Um, they have three children, all of whom are very sick. So why don't we cut them a little slack? Yeah. <laughs> that part, I was like, rude. Okay. Um, so <laughs> they did end up finding a shotgun next to the bed in the parents' room. Um, but apparently the gun didn't work. 
Um, so the police found the two other kids in their bedroom and noted the room was covered in stains of unknown origin. Ew. The kids informed the police that they had um, vomited in their beds. They had like stains around their mouth, which they were like sick. So I don't know that the parents had necessarily gotten to cleaning it up yet or what the deal was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can imagine if you if there's three kids who are like super sick that it might be hard to like. And if the police are at your door, like. Maybe it's not, you're not going to clean up after them first. You're trying to deal with the situation at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but the police took the children to the hospital and then they were placed in foster care. So the two year old was diagnosed with a respiratory illness. So it did not appear that the children had any other serious medical issues besides that. So um, I'll maybe I'll, I'll come back to that but the so the attorney representing sarah in juvenile court proceedings argued that the police were unjustified in their use of force he said it was ridiculous that the police entered the home with their guns drawn he also doubted the need for immediate medical treatment he asked if it was such an immediate emergency why wasn't the child placed in an ice bath in the doctor's office which i'm not sure if that's like standard treatment for fevers but sure whatever um or why didn't the doctor have the child directly transported to the er Mm -hmm. um the southwest college of naturopathic medicine did not comment after the incident and a spokesperson for the arizona dcf darren danroco declined to comment on the specific case due to confidentiality but um, did note that state laws allow police officers assisting in child welfare cases to use reasonable force to enter buildings so after this event, an online outlet that covers religion, Patheos, started a conspiracy theory that the children were being stolen by the authorities. This theory spread like wildfire in anti-vax groups on Facebook. People believe that Arizona DCS were kidnapping unvaccinated children to sell them into foster care. And they believed that unvaccinated children were in high demand because they are so incredibly healthy. And some even believe there may be a kidnapping cartel in Arizona. (laughs) So that, I think, is just, like, the most extremist view and probably does not represent, like, any sort of majority. (laughs) Okay. That's just, like, I don't even think that's worth necessarily addressing. I just thought it was kind Mm. of, like, funny. Anyway, so conspiracy theories are not true clearly however this case caught the attention of arizona state representative kelly townsend she was quoted saying mandatory measles shots were communist um she also believed that sarah and uh brooks may have been targeted by the medical community because they hadn't vaccinated their kids uh, Representative Townsend actually helped write the red legislation that requires DCS to get a warrant before taking a child from their parent or guardians in non-emergency situations. She said it was not the intent of the law to bring in a SWAT team over a family disagreeing with a doctor over a high fever. It used to be that DCS could remove a child from a parent's custody without a warrant. Um, in order to remove a child from their parent's custody, DCS must have probable cause to believe the child is at imminent risk of harm and that there isn't a less intrusive alternative to the removal. I mean, um, do you, <laughs> I don't know if that, I feel, does that not apply in this case? I, that's what, <sighs> so... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. 
Well, here's the thing. So the kid ended up having a like respiratory infection, right? And at mm-hmm. the end of the day, that is not, you know, something that I don't I don't think requires, you know, kind of immediate like it's something that a kid will get better on their own with time. Yeah. Um so would we think differently about this if the child ended up having meningitis or some other life-threatening illness that like what if the child had something that yeah. was bad. So my thought is not knowing what the child has, knowing, but like based on what they do know and knowing like what the worst case scenario is to me implies an imminent risk or imminent right. harm. So well, that's what I'm saying. Because it ended up being that the kid was, you know, essentially going to be fine, then that makes the reaction seem kind of all of, I will too point out there were so many instances where the parents could have just taken their child to seek medical care. They gave them so many opportunities and explained very, I think they did a good job of explaining why and what their concerns were. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the parent, it wasn't just like, I think they had every opportunity to kind of resolve that situation in a less aggressive manner. Yeah. But I think that the authorities, they have to operate thinking worst case scenario. They have to operate yeah. because they weren't given the opportunity to rule that out. Yeah, Because exactly. they didn't take their child in. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like law enforcement, the hope is that they're operating in the best interest of a potential victim. Um, and... Yeah, yeah, I feel like the in, kid could have easily had meningitis, and in that case, exactly. like that kid needed to be taken to the hospital, or there could have been something else wrong. Because yeah. the parent could have been, like, I don't want to demonize the parent, but she could have been lying, saying mm-hmm. that he was feeling better. She could have, like, that kid could have been laying dead in the floor because it had a fever and like passed away, and she was like too nervous. You know, like there were just so yeah. many cases where this could have gone wrong Mm -hmm. and they had every opportunity to come out and resolve it in a more peaceful manner yeah and if it had gone the other way if the kid was dead or if it was a more serious illness that you know could have led to death or like severe impairment um i think the the authorities and the physician would have gotten so much more backlash for not intervening in a more aggressive manner. Right. And so it's this interesting version of a little catch-22, I think. Um, yeah. Exactly. That's why I would, would be interested to hear, because I think, obviously, if my parents had heard, like, oh, your kid has a fever, take them to the ER, they would be like, okay, <laughs> we're going. <laughs> um, but in a case where, like, a parent might not believe that their child needs to go to the ER or... You know, obviously, you know, doctors are going to advocate for, like, the highest level of Mm -hmm. care. But if, like, if another parent thinks, like, my kid's going to be fine. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, would it would it escalate? Like, if your parents if your parents were like, no, she's fine. Like, she's in the car. (laughs) She's moving around. Like, I'm not going to the hospital. My parents would have taken me to like, if not like a hospital, they would have taken me somewhere like a community clinic uh right they like would have taken they, like they yeah they would have yeah my, <laughs> they're you know they're a, a bit stricter and stuff in terms of like that sort of thing but 
like their goal also as I was growing up was for me not to die. <laughs> so you know, like you know, I didn't like, mean to insinuate that your parents wouldn't no, take no, you to the ER no, if no, the doctor just, recommended it. No, 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 that's no, no, that's not. I didn't take it that way. I was just, I just feel like. I don't necessarily believe that the parents in this case were operating as if that was their goal. <laughs> um, you know, and that's not to be critical, just, I just think they weren't asking, it's not like the doctor was saying, you know, we need you to fly a jet on your own to like Darfur, <laughs> like to get this kid treatment. Yeah, and it was to just get like, this experimental treatment yeah, that may or may like not it, work or like isn't approved. It was it's an just easy like your ask. kid has a high. And well, here's the thing too is like, am I biased in this situation because I know that this parent is anti vax? Do I automatically think, okay, they're not going to have their child's best interest in mind because they did not vaccinate their child for apparent, seemingly personal reasons? If it's medical reasons, then, like, absolutely, that's your own business. But because it seems like she just did not feel like getting her children vaccinated, am I biased? I mean... Like, like we're all biased right <laughs> like one way or another right um I, I that could totally be a little bit of that but i think it's hard like even if we took out the vaccination stuff it's hard to for me at least to empathize with like not doing a basic thing to make sure like your kid is okay right um and like it, I, it just up I was going to say, I also, you know, in this case, what possibly biases me, like she did ask the doctor if we could lie about, about like the kid's vaccination status. And so to me, given that that was even a concern or a question for, I think it implies that there was another consideration that maybe influenced the decision not to do this very basic thing to make sure your kid was okay right Um, it was that yeah it's not like if this story were like oh my gosh this mother like could not afford like she was in medical debt already like she you know was like working minimum wage job Mm -hmm. she just like didn't want to me like it wouldn't it wouldn't have even like come to that you know it 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 feels like her intentions were not pure in this situation Mm -hmm. so that also like colors colors my thoughts but at the same time too that's such a traumatic event to happen to a family to happen to those children at such a young age to be Mm -hmm. removed from the home um to have police like knock down your door and come in with guns drawn like that's so incredibly traumatic Mm -hmm. that like is the harm done by by them being removed from their home by being taken out of their parents custody to me, that harm, like, seems to outweigh it. Or I don't know if it outweighs, but it's just something that's to be taken into consideration. And yeah. it just seems like it's over such a ridiculous... It, like, to me, I'm just so frustrated that the parents didn't just take their kids to the ER. Yeah, and that's... I, I feel... Like, yeah, the harm, the trauma of that kind of, um, you know, situation of being taken from your home, police, all of that stuff, 100%... Like, it... I don't I don't blame authorities for that. 
like I feel like, you know, the parents kind of dropped the ball (laughs) on all fronts and then contributed significantly to this. So. Right. Right. Yeah. (sighs) Well, not nice. Either way. So that that language that I just said, it came pretty much directly from azcentral.com. So I wanted to shout out to them. Um, But so this this law that you would need a, a warrant or like a custody order, it was intended to reduce the number of kids taken into DCS custody. So it was supposed to be an added measure to protect parental rights. Um, In 2016, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that it violated a parent's constitutional rights to remove a child without court approval. So you and here's the interesting thing is that you're allowed your day in court for most crimes, Mm -hmm. but it's different for those that are accused of neglect and abuse because... You know, if you're waiting to, like, be seen in court for, like, a robbery or something, you know, you're you're waiting for the court case, you get sentenced, blah, blah, blah. But in this case, like, the children need to be removed from the home before they're able to determine if the neglect and abuse occurred to prevent any further neglect or abuse from happening. But if it turns out that there wasn't any neglect or abuse, then you just removed children from their home. So there's no, like, perfect... There's no perfect or easy solution there in my mind. You know, I, I recognize that it's I, it's bad that the kids are removed from their home yeah. without their there there should be like strong probable cause. I mean, there. I don't think it's that different from a lot of other crimes. Like if I get accused of like embezzling money from my job, I'm probably not allowed to go to work tomorrow. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's you, like I get it because it, it's this in this case, it's a much more like grave or sensitive thing. But that so I think I told you a while ago about the show Criminal where it's just like an interrogation and it's like mm-hmm. each episode is its one thing. own thing. There was this one um, episode in the most recent season and there's only like three or four episodes a season. Um, and it is starring Kit Harrington as the um as the criminal um and that's uh-huh. Jon Snow from Game of Thrones for all of my Game of Thrones people. But his whole thing so he, you know, spoiler, sorry if you guys don't want to listen, you know, fast forward a little. Um his whole thing was he's he was accused of sexual assault by a woman. Um mm-hmm. and so the police came into his office, told him why he was being arrested arrested him in front of all of his employees all of his um co-workers um and then you know took him out and then turns out the accuser like this was just a scam that she had run like multiple times before and his whole like he has this very intense like monologue at the end of it and he was like okay well what are you guys going to do to put my life back together like right you know you've come in you've destroyed everything like my coworkers are not gonna like it doesn't matter if I didn't do this I've been accused so like write me a letter <laughs> that says yeah. I didn't do this um, it's like um, so, Richard Richard Jewell the case that I brought up before yeah, yeah. where everyone blamed him for the bombing and like yeah where's and, the remedy what do you, what do you yeah think? and so it's just this really uh, like it's this unpleasant part of our justice system in all cases um and then i think it's obviously especially more sensitive when it comes to crimes like these um or not crimes accusations like child abuse neglect any type of abuse um that i think they have 
very like irreparable um, consequences a lot of times, not just on a mm-hmm. not just on like your reputation, but on like people's mental health and psyche. And so mm-hmm. it's just an unperfect system. But then you think like, well, what if it what if this person was guilty or, you know, right. and we leave them in the situation? What um, what happens then? You know? Right. Well, that, yeah, that's what I was yeah. saying is like, even though the kid ended up being mostly fine, like what if they hadn't? Exactly. So it's, you're right. It's like an imperfect system. I think another thing with our justice system that I'm, I'm honestly not quite sure how to fix. I don't have any necessarily ideas. Do your research, I guess. Like make sure uh, before you do an arrest, like do as much looking into it as you possibly can, you know, feel like you, I don't, I don't know. Anyway. I just have like a paragraph left. Um, So Representative Townsend said, um, what about the parents' rights to decide what's best for their child? The parents felt the child was fine. Next thing we know, the Gestapo is at their door. Is it Gestapo or Gestapo? Gestapo. Gestapo. Um, So she sat in on the family's juvenile court hearing and expressed frustration with this case, saying the children had been traumatized after being taken from their parents' home, seeing their parents get arrested. She was contacted by the Washington Post after the meeting and was a little bit more toned down. Um, She said she understood the doctors were trying to be safe rather than sorry. She recognized how things might have been different if the parents came to the door and talked with authorities. Mm -hmm. But she also recognized... um, how parents may want to hold off a very expensive ER trip after the child's fever had subsided. Mm -hmm. And she said this case raises a question about your parents' right to make decisions for their child's care. She asked, is a doctor an authority figure you must listen to or risk losing your family? Um, Which I think, you know, doctors also aren't perfect people. I think that we do have a right, you know, like if if you don't exactly there are cases where doctors aren't right mm-hmm. so like if you're going with your gut like i don't know this is just like this is tearing yeah. me up inside i think where um, it gets like super complicated is i think you have every right to refuse treatment you have every right to decide um how you want your health care to go but if it's for your child but it's as a like I just feel like your job a lot of times as a parent obviously is to make the best decision for your kid but I also think it's to make the best decision for your kid until they're old enough to make the best decision for themselves right Um, and like in this case it wasn't that controversial of a decision like you were saying it's not like these doctors were saying we want you to get this like treatment that's crazy expensive that we're not sure if it's gonna work but like you need to get it it's like not that controversial to take your child with a high fever to the er and as far as i can tell it's not like her beliefs were i'm anti i'm anti-healthcare system (laughs) you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it's just like like i can't even say you know so Jehovah's Witnesses don't accept blood transfusions and they won't accept a blood transfusion for their kid. Um, and while I have like mixed feelings about that, I can understand where like their religious like belief system comes into play. But in like in this case, there is no religious belief system about the healthcare system. There is no any belief system as far as I can tell like mm-hmm. that's against like hospitals or something and so it's like what is like I just don't get it and I mean I understand her argument of like you know at what point like do parents or like 
are doctors authorities and like can aren't parents like the general authority for making the best decisions for their kid i totally get mm-hmm. that but i don't know like we're we're in like super murky waters and i i can't fully agree <laughs> like right. with her like i can understand it philosophically i can't agree with it like rationally i think um, right um well either way just to like so they were charged with um child abuse i don't know that i saw any articles that talked about the ending it's still a pretty recent case so it's possible that it just hasn't been addressed in the court system yet um but interestingly there was like a link to an article that said brooks bryce and sarah beck filed a lawsuit in federal court um last month that accuses Chandler and Arizona Department of Child Safety officials of unlawfully taking custody of their three children in a series of chaotic events in February 2019. But when you click on the link, it brings you to a page that doesn't have any information. And I couldn't find any other information anywhere else about them trying to file a lawsuit. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just that website, like just didn't have the information anymore for whatever reason, or if there was some Results in the lawsuit that made mm-hmm. them have to take that article down. Yeah. Um, but I just thought it was interesting to know that at some point there was an article that <laughs> they had tried to file a lawsuit. Yeah. Um, but I think they have their kids back. They mm-hmm. they were able to get custody back of their kids. So at the very least, they're back in the home. Don't know that they're like in jail. <laughs> um, but it's just like a very see like. Isn't it a thought-provoking case? Like, after I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do that, even even though I'm not sure it fits into the category I picked yeah. out. no, not it at all. It kind of does. Uh, no. Does it, it? It involves doctors. Um, yeah. They weren't the quacks. Medi- medicals. <laughs> uh, um, we'll all we'll, Yeah, it's a... Uh, we bad medical decisions, this. I think. Yeah, okay. <laughs> bad yeah. medical decisions. Great, great. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, I su- I fully support their right to sue. Um, I support the lawsuit. I think, um, I think it's cool. Whatever. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad was like, "You can sue anyone for any reason," and I firmly believe that. And if you can get money <laughs> for things, oh my god, say, do it. That reminds me. Oh my god, when Katie was like a little kid, she must have like seen it on a TV show or something. But she like got in her head that like anyone who disagreed with her on anything, she would say she was going to sue them. So this like little kids running around being like, "I'm gonna sue you," and like I didn't even understand what suing was. I was like, "Okay, that. Katie, okay." I, my case is quite different. Um, I kind of stuck true to what I think Rachel had said originally. Um, but Don't at me. It's kind of long. Um, so God forgive me. But um, I don't think God actually needs to forgive me for that. Whatever. Um, all right. So I'm doing the case of Linda Hazard, which... What an interesting name. last name based off of what she chooses to do for, to do for um, her life. Um, so Linda Hazard was born Linda Laura Burfield in Minnesota in 1867. Who knew that Minnesota was around in 1867? Not me. <laughs> um, I don't even think I don't ever think about Minnesota. My yeah. friend used to live there, but never um, crosses my mind. Also, like 
her name, her married name is, or her first name when she's married is L-I-N-D-A, but like her name when she was born was L-Y-N-D-A, and so just very creative spelling of Linda. Um, Anyway, so she married at 18 and had two kids uh, before abandoning her husband and children and moving to Minneapolis to start her career. Um, Her divorce from her first husband came around the same time her first patient died. And so I'm going to get into more details about like her medical um, stuff. And so um, that was in 1902. And so her first patient or victim, depending on your perspective, uh, died of starvation. And so the coroner on the case wanted Linda, Linda to be tried and convicted for the death of the patient, but no charges were ever brought because, you know, the patient was died of starvation. You know, who's to say she was involved? Um, police however did investigate linda because many of the patients valuables like these like really expensive rings and stuff like that had somehow just disappeared linda was evasive throughout the investigation but um the investigation basically stopped there um after this linda married the man of her dreams samuel chrisman hazard um samuel was a graduate of west point academy and who he had like recently ruined a very promising military career by misappropriating um, army funds, so basically stealing. Um, and he is described as being a drunk, lecher, and swindler who had married twice before and hadn't bothered to divorce at least one of his wives when he married Linda. And so he, they ended up being part of like a super highly publicized um, trial for bigamy and Samuel was sentenced to two years in prison for being married to multiple people. Um, when he was released from prison, they decided to move to Washington state to start a new life um, in Olala, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Olala, Washington, uh, Linda, right? L O L L O A L L A. No, yeah, I spelled that right. Alala. Um, so Linda created a sanitarium that she named Wilderness Heights. Locals nicknamed it Starvation Heights. Uh, so it's important to note that she didn't have any formal medical training or medical degree, but for some reason she was licensed to practice medicine in the state of Washington. Um, and so there was basically some sort of loophole that grandfathered in some practitioners of alternative medicine without um, degrees for medical licensure whatever um according to her book called the science of fasting i don't recommend reading it uh she studied under a doctor named edward hookie do sorry edward edward hookie edward hooker dewey um and he was a champion of fasting and so linda's whole philosophy philosophy inspired by her work with edward hooker dewey for medical treatment was basically that disease any disease uh, could be cured by fasting, allowing the digestive. Di- blah, 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 blah. Uh, Linda's whole philosophy. Linda's whole philosophy, inspired by her work with Edward Hooker Dewey uh, for medical treatment, was basically that disease, um, any disease, could be cured by fasting. Um, basically by allowing the digestive system to rest and be cleansed, um, removing impurities from the body. 
It's so bad that I'm getting so hungry just listening <laughs> to you talk about fasting. I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm also quite uh, famished. According to her, fasting could cure anything from a toothache to tuberculosis. Uh, the real source of all disease was impure blood, according to Linda, brought on by impaired digestion. And so at Wilderness Heights, patients were admitted and required to fast for days, weeks, or months on a diet of small amounts of tomato and asparagus juice and occasionally a small teaspoon of orange juice. Um, while some patients survived and publicly sang her praises, dozens died under her care. Locals um, also described sometimes coming across patients wandering the streets who had escaped from Wilderness Heights. They were basically just skin and bones with no energy, um, but out there begging for food. Um, so Linda's regime um, included daily, several hours long enemas that involved up to 12 quarts of water patients uh were heard crying out in pain during these procedures um and so the third part of her therapy so after the fasting after the enemas uh linda would uh, (laughs) linda basically prescribed massage and so that consisted of linda who is described as a wiry woman said to be stronger than the average man um beating her fists against the patient's foreheads and backs vigorously while while shouting eliminate eliminate um so (laughs) this is what this is what i told jerome that he was like i kind of feel like fighting this person (laughs) um it makes not one lick of sense to me and just seems incredibly cruel i don't really get it too weak so they can't fight back and then just beat the demons out of them yeah um, to cure their toothache um and so locals including free thinkers and theosophists um so just different schools of thought i guess um embraced linda's medical theories one of linda's first known um washington victims was named daisy maud hagland linda prescribed her a 50-day fast which led to her death on february 26th 1908 at the age of 38 she left behind a three-year-old son named ivar um and so kind of in a, just a random side note, kind of in a poetic way, you know, Ivar's mom died basically of starvation. And so he would actually go on to make a name for himself um, and a fortune for himself by feeding millions of people um, as the owner of successful seafood restaurants. So Aww. good for you. He was also like some sort of musician. Um, yeah, did a lot. Um Anyway, so other victims followed. There was Ida Wilcox in 1908, Blanche B. Tyndall and Violet Viola Heaton in 1909, Maude Whitney in 1910, um, and then when a civil engineer named uh, Earl Edward Erdman, so E-E-E, good job there, um, began... Erdman, what a name. <laughs> Erdman, uh, began Linda's... Sh- treatment regimen in 1911 and died of starvation three weeks later the seattle daily times um like put out um a headline that read woman quote md kills another patient still patients kept on coming uh seeking linda's fasting treatment 
Frank Southard, a lawyer um, in the firm of Morris Southard and Shipley, and C.A. Harrison, which um, I think was kind of a big deal over there. He was also a publisher of the Alaska Yukon magazine. Um, He died under Linda's care a few months into the... uh, I guess, treatment, along with Ivan Flux, an Englishman who had come to America to buy a ranch, and he ended up fasting um, under Linda's supervision for 53 days. Uh, And so during his fast, Linda got control of his cash and property, and his family was told that he died with only $70 left to his name. Hmm. Um, So she was, again, not only just killing people, um, she, it seems that she started, you know, trying to financially benefit by stealing, um, from these patients as well. When Lewis Ellsworth Rader, a former legislator and publisher of a magazine called Sound Views, began wasting away, authorities finally stepped in. Linda treated Lewis at the Outlook Hotel in 1911, and health inspectors tried to intervene by convincing him to leave um, the hotel um, and stop Linda's treatment, but he refused. Uh, Linda basically took him away to a secret location and um, eventually this man who was 5'11", he died weighing less than 100 pounds. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, And so the Seattle health director um, said that he couldn't intervene, which vastly different from your case, but we're also talking about like 100 years. Um, But yeah, so the health director said he couldn't intervene since Dr. Hazard was licensed and the patients uh, were willing participants in her therapy, no matter how deadly the therapy was. Um, A lot of people were really loyal to her, though. Um, They were followers of the treatment. And so... Um, that combined with her like commanding personality, I think, helped to contribute to um, her kind of just running rampant and doing this. Um, well, because I, I, I would imagine that some people do get lucky and did get better and then just attributed that to her. Yeah. I'm also curious if these... I wonder if the people who did get better actually had anything truly medically wrong with them like if you're coming in and you're like oh i just you know i've had a stomach ache for the past few weeks like it is mm-hmm. potentially like you know if you're if you're eating a lot of dairy and turns out you're lactose intolerant yeah probably fasting for a week will probably make you feel better mm-hmm. um but that's not like a grave medical like illness um and that also could have been solved by probably a number of other things like eliminating dairy and so i'm curious what true medical diagnosis that some of the patients who sang her praises actually like had true um yeah um because i i think i read that most patients who had things like you know more severe illnesses did not fare well you know unfortunately i mean it doesn't seem like they would yeah disclaimer um fasting is not going to cure cancer so prove me wrong though i i will i will gladly i will gladly uh, apologize for that false statement if i am incorrect um uh in addition so some of linda's patients were afraid of her and they actually couldn't bring themselves to disobey her or speak out against um the treatment um but the health director did keep an eye on her in case she ever treated any children because at that point legally he could step in 
Um, the pattern was becoming very familiar um, and like super worrisome. Uh, basically, she started setting up uh, patients in like hotels around Seattle or in cabins on uh, Linda's property in Olala, like where, um, I don't know, what's it called? Starvation Heights, whatever they called it, Wilderness Heights. Um, and so autopsies reported um, that starvation, starvation was often the cause of death um, of Linda's patients, unless Linda was the one who performed the autopsy, in which case, Basically, anything but starvation was the cause of death, according to her. Mm-hmm. Um, surprise, surprise. There was one exception to the pattern. So in 1909, a 26-year-old guy named Eugene Stanley Wakelin, um, he was found dead on the Hazards property in Olala. He was a son of a British lord, um, and he had died as a result of a bullet to his head. And so the presumption there was suicide. <laughs> oh, very different. Very, very different. Um, so yeah, the presumption there was suicide. Um, but interestingly, um, Linda somehow had power of attorney over this guy's estate. And she had uh, sent his lawyer a note. Um, I think this lawyer was in England, um, basically complaining that she needed more of his money uh, so that she could pay his bill at the mortuary. Um, and so the British Vice Council, which I'm not really sure what that is, uh, located in Tacoma, Washington, speculated that um, the hazards must have shot him after um, getting frustrated, um, after they learned that even though he was like an aristocrat, he actually wasn't rich, which um, I don't know if anyone watched the like Megan and Harry thing. You also learned Harry was not rich, <laughs> you know? Um, and so... <sighs> There, so yeah, he wasn't rich, so they killed him because they were looking for a rich guy to kind of mooch off of. Um, but then comes Dorothea and Claire Williamson, two sisters in their early 30s who actually were rich um, and severe hypochondriacs, which was, I guess, the stars aligning for Linda. And so the sisters had financial control over a large estate, so they just had like a ton of fluid money basically um or capital and so while visiting uh british columbia canada they read an advertisement for linda's book in a seattle newspaper and so they actually they ordered it and along with the book came a brochure um promoting linda's like institute for natural therapy starvation whatever it is um and so they decided to go and take their fast, take her fasting cure. But they didn't tell any of their relatives because their family was already pretty much like side eyeing them for being so like interested in unorthodox and alternative medicine that a lot of times had proved to be dangerous. Um, and so in February 1911, Linda agreed to teach to um, treat the sisters again, setting them up at a hotel. And they pretty much survived mostly on thin vegetable broth. Um, and so, again, that'd be like every couple of days, maybe a teaspoon or a small cup of vegetable broth. And uh, Lin- Linda also regularly provided hours long enemas and her 
you know, abusive no. massage. Um, and so um, she also began to ask the sisters uh, about like their finances and their business affairs um, and offered to store the women's like valuables to like their di- their um, diamond rings or any like deeds that they had to any property or estates in her safe, um, which I feel how, like how is nice a little suspicious. Like, you're my doctor. No, she was protecting their documents for them. She was, like, going above and beyond providing just, like, exceptional medical care. Oh, yeah. Like, she also cared so much about... She didn't want them to worry about their assets, of course, of course, so they could focus on their treatment. Uh, So by April, the sisters were emaciated. They were delirious, uh, not, you know, all there, pretty much. Uh, And so they were taken... Um, from the hotels that they were staying at to Wilderness Heights in ambulances. But just before, like, the ambulance, like, left uh, the hotel that they were at, Linda had her private attorney get a signature from Claire. Um, And the signature ended up being on an addendum to Claire's will, which left a monthly stipend of 25 pounds sterling per year for... um, uh, Linda's like sanatorium um, adding that in case of her death she also would want her body to be cremated under the care and direction of Linda um, and so it's probably pretty clear that given that they were delirious um, and have been starved uh, since February <laughs> like it's now April that Claire probably had very little idea of what she was signing or if mm-hmm. they told her she probably wasn't in her right state of mind to sign it um and so 25 pounds is in 1911 is equivalent to 3011 um pounds in 2020 which is 4000 almost 4200 dollars in the u.s now um so i guess a lot for that time period um Okay, on April 30th, the Hazards um, sent the sister's um, childhood nanny, Margaret Conway, a a super cryptic telegram, basically asking her to come visit them in Olala. And so she had to actually take a boat from Australia, which blows my mind. And so she didn't get there until June um because it's a boat um and so when margaret got there she was told that claire had died and that dorothea had gone insane and so when she saw dorothea for the (laughs) first time uh dorothea was basically a human skeleton um not only that dorothea was stuck living alone in a cabin that basically looked just like a shack on the alala property um once Dorothea saw Margaret, Dorothea immediately begged to be taken away. Um, but the next day she withdrew her request and um, basically insisted that the cure was doing a world of good for her. And so I think that probably suggests that um, uh, Linda, that's her name, I wanted to call her Lizzie, Linda had done something to kind of threatened her yeah i don't know my it might have been an, another massage um or like we're gonna do or maybe she's like for 24 i'm hours. only gonna give you food if you oh say. yeah that's also yeah um, we don't know. And, <laughs> um and so margaret stayed with dorothea because she was hoping that she'd be able to consider convinced Dorothea to leave um she even tried sneaking some rice and like 
literal like flower into um like into the area that uh Dorothea was staying um because like her the only thing that she was getting was broth and so she was like maybe maybe i could put like some rice in it um even some some flour in it would be helpful (laughs) um and so for the most part the patients were always like separated from each other at the at at wilderness heights i want to call it weathering heights um at wilderness heights but they were all let out for the 4th of july because there was some celebration going on and um i think two of the patients actually approached Margaret and begged her to, uh, to like get them out of there. Um, and they described themselves as prisoners. So Linda was Sounds doing worse a than prison, job. honestly. Yeah. They feed you in prison usually, hopefully. Um, and so Margaret also noticed that Linda was wearing Claire's silk dressing gown and her favorite hat. She learned that Dorothea had also given um, the hazards power of eternity over her and helped um, help themselves to some of her funds. When she announced to Linda that she was leaving and she was taking Dorothea with her, Linda was like, nope, Dorothea is not allowed to leave. Um, so in addition to power of, author- of attorney over like her estate, um, the hazard had also somehow a- obtained legal guardianship over Dorothea, which she's an adult god um it's like a britney spears situation seriously free britney (laughs) um they explained that dorothea would be spending the rest of her life with them how like you you just nope she's not allowed to leave she's spending the rest of her life here like well they didn't probably think her life was gonna go on too much longer the way that they were treating her exactly and so but i'm just like you guys are technically treating them to treating your patients so that they can get better and yet you're saying she's spending the rest of her life here so what does that imply (laughs) like oh bad person um and so margaret snuck off of the property and she contacted um dorothea's uncle who actually lived in portland and he came to rescue um both margaret and dorothea and so at this point dorothea was only 60 pounds and when their uncle got there um Linda and Samuel basically was like, okay, if you want to take her, you need to pay us $2,000. And they wouldn't allow her to leave without that money. And so the uncle was actually able to negotiate a smaller ransom and Dorothea was freed. (laughs) And I just, this just seems insane to me. Like you, I don't understand. Like it's horrible. It's it's so horrible. I can't even wrap my brain around that. Negotiating a ransom. Mm-hmm. Like come on. And the other part that I'll, like nothing was wrong with the sisters. Like they weren't unwell in any just way. Had a little illness anxiety disorder. Yeah, like they just were like, "Oh my god, we don't want to get sick." So, it was almost preventative, but it Sounds prevented like they just nothing. needed some some therapy that unfortunately probably was not available to them back then. Like just give them some tea that tells them they'll they'll be okay for a little while. Like I don't know. Yeah, placebo. Yeah. Um, Seems like an appropriate situation to do that. 
Yeah. And so because the sisters were the sisters were British. And so the British Vice Council again in Tacoma actually pressured uh, Kitsap County, where Olala was located to prosecute Linda for what she had done to them. Um, But the county actually said they couldn't afford it. And so when Dorothea heard about this, now that she was freed, she like fronted the money so that the prosecution could um, like like pursue charges against Linda which I feel like is a slight conflict of interest like if I'm the you know victim in the case and I'm giving the prosecution money to like go after the accused like it's murky right um I guess in this case though Linda did do bad but yeah she did do bad Mm -hmm. she she sure did unless this whole thing is a complete fabrication. Um, (gasps) Could you imagine? (laughs) It Um, doesn't seem like that. Yeah. (laughs) And so in August 1911, Linda was arrested. The Tacoma Daily News um, published a paper with a headline that read, Officials Expect to Expose Starvation Atrocities, Dr. Hazard Depicted as a Fiend. Um, Linda said that she was being prosecuted because she was a a successful woman and that a bunch of these other traditional male doctors just like resented her success and were just like you know haters of like natural cures oh shut up Linda (laughs) they're hating on me because I'm a lady and I do better work than them um so she told reporters that she intended to take the stand and show them up. Um, she said, they've been playing checkers, but it's my move. I'll show them a thing or two when I get on the stand. Um, but of course, her lawyer kept her off the stand because if you're talking like that, I don't think you're going to win when a lot Any of people Any good over. lawyer would be like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please do not talk. Yeah, and so there was a ton of medical testimony um, from, like, actual medical doctors that, um, you know, provided enough evidence for why what Linda was doing was wrong. Um, They also had patients testify against her, including Dorothea, which, again, because she's funding, it seems a little murky. Um, They also had a complete paper trail of everything that Linda had done because she kept records. And they also had a forged diary entry um, that Linda had done that claimed Claire wanted Linda to have her diamonds. Um, And so all evidence. Who would ever write that in their diary? I would like my doctor to have my diamonds. Right. Um, And so all evidence pretty much made it clear that the hazards, both Linda and Samuel, were you know, thieves at the very least. Um, and of course that Linda was a quack. Um, and so in the end, Linda was convicted of manslaughter. Um, the press actually speculated that if she had been a man, the verdict would have been murder, not manslaughter. Um, I don't know why, but I guess sexism. I don't know. Um, And so Linda killed two more patients while she was actually awaiting um, 
being sentenced. Uh, She eventually only served two years in the state penitentiary at Walla Walla. And then she and her husband moved to New Zealand, where she operated under several titles, including physician, dietitian, and osteopath. She published another book. She made tons of money. Um, And then in 1920, she had made enough money that she decided that she wanted to come back to Olala and then like rebuild her sanitarium at Starvation Heights. Um, And so, but the state of Washington had pulled her medical license at that point. And so instead of a sanitarium or any type of healthcare center, she called it a school of health. Um, Mm -hmm. She also made sure, she also made sure to include a very um, state of the art, uh, autopsy room in her basement so that she could be the one to do the autopsies. Um, and I think we, we've talked about it in a previous case, like a lot of times coroners don't have to have a medical license, right? I Maybe. We, I think we talked about it in Probably. a previous case. Um, anyway, so Linda, so after that and returning to Alala, she continued starving people to death. Um, but the School of Health burnt down 15 years later in 1935. Oh, no. mm, sad. <laughs> so sad. Um, and then three years later, late later, uh, three years later, Linda hadn't been feeling well. So naturally, she was like, I'm going to take a fast, which divinely resulted in her own death. Um so that is the case of Linda Hazard and her fasting cure. I don't know what else to call it. Um, her fasting enema abuse cure. So cure in quotation. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm like miserable after hearing that. I think I've like. I've heard this story before. It's been long enough that I forgot. And now that you've reminded me of it, I just feel like I'm, I just want to go eat some cookies. <laughs> really is what I would like to do. Um, yeah, that's just twisted. I mean, it would be one thing if she was like just gung ho on the fasting and was maybe like so convinced about that the fasting worked that if she was like blinded by her own. Like, if she genuinely thought she was doing good versus, like, I don't think she thought she was doing good. I think she was trying to steal people's money. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't... It would be one thing if she thought she was doing good but accidentally was killing people because she was so ignorant versus, like, you know you're killing people mm-hmm. and you're, like, just stealing their money and that's mess. You're, like, making them suffer this horrible death, like... Mm-hmm. And then taking their money. Like, yeah. come on. But also, again, like, if we take away all of the other heinous things and it's just the fasting, how many of your patients have to die from a toothache for you to be like, hmm, maybe I should. Maybe, like, the risk is not worth, like, the whatever. The reward isn't worth the risk, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, I just, that. I'm just, like, do some actual research. Yeah. Uh, like, have a group of, like, I don't know how you would have a, um, what's what's it called? You're a researcher. The group that, like, doesn't get the treatment and then the group that does. Oh, control. Control, yeah. <laughs> have a con- control group of the situation. What, what are your independent variables? What are, <laughs> you know? 
do some yeah. actual do research to see if this helps. Like, yeah, do a randomized double blind trial. Um, um, other research work, <laughs> but also just in general, like typically fasting is very tell. bad. <laughs> like you can you, tell. Yeah, so, f- like fasting in general, I feel like um, there's a, like a growing body of evidence, even for like intermittent fasting. Um, I can't is, do intermittent fasting. Yeah, I fail. <laughs> um, that it's like a dis- it's disordered eating. Like even if it doesn't, you know, fall into some sort of like clinical diagnosis of something, it is disordered um, and can be unhealthy for you. And for the most part, not eating is usually bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, don't don't start like at least to the point of starvation. You know that it's like bad, right? Like if you're okay, I'm yeah. not gonna eat for a couple days. Like that's your choice. But like if your muscles start eating themselves, then it's bad. So yeah, if you're losing great amounts of weight and like a rep, I think it's healthy to lose like one to two pounds a week if you're doing it by the proper channels. So if you're drastically losing weight, if like you're under the weight that's healthy for a normal adult, like 60 pounds, come on. There's no universe where that's healthy for an adult human person. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, And, you know, I don't know. It's just like, why? Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast. <laughs>